Reflections on Shakespeare's King Lear by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 Well, as brazen as I am most of the time, there are some texts that intimidate me, and Act 5 of King Lear is one of them. I don't think I've ever really done justice to it. I don't expect to. I, I get to the end of it each time that I'm working with it, and I feel the way I imagine I will feel when I get to the end of my life, which is that uh, if I just had a little bit more time, I could do more justice to its significance. <laughs> We've been investigating King Lear under this overall theme of worthy stories confused with dubious plots. And so once again, I'll return to that theme as we as we begin our uh, glance at Act Five. Where in literature has so sordid a plot and so transcendent a story been so conflated as in Act Five of King Lear? I I tried to think this week of where else in the literature that I'm familiar with something like this occurs. And the only one that I feel confident about is is Book 24 of Homer's Iliad, though I think it's possible to uh, include in there the prophetic writings of Hosea. But other than that, I had a hard time thinking of a, of a text that brings the sordid plots and the transcendent stories together so, uh, so amazingly as Act 5 of King Lear. Arthur Sewell said that Shakespearean tragedy finds its origin not in a Christian idea of, perf of imperfection, but in Renaissance anarchism. Now, we usually don't think of Renaissance anarchism. seems like a non-secular, seems like, a, like an oxymoron, Renaissance anarchism. And Sewell doesn't go on to explain his comment, but... So let me. <laughs> There's the brazen thing again, you see. We may look back on the Renaissance and see it not as the spring which the people who lived through it felt it to be, some of them, and the spring that we have tended to think of it as being for us, but we may look back on it and see the, the kind of warming and flowering that occurred as not part of the spring, but part of the the first stages of the greenhouse effect. Now, that is to say, uh, an overall warming which was which was to which was uh, a little more alarming than the springtime warning warming. Although in the first instance it had the same consequence, that is to say, it produced some marvelous results. New flowerings, a, a real springtime, but not one, but one that had other. Uh, another uh, effect later on. It may be that as we b begin the 21st century, uh, the what we thought of as the Renaissance springtime will come to be seen as the first benign stages of what Sewell calls rena Renaissance anarchism. And as we enter the 21st century, instead of noticing the the flowering and the warming, what we may, may notice is that the beachfront bungalows 
and the sociologies that gave rise to them are, going, are being engulfed by a rising tide. And then we would have a different assessment of the whole historical epoch. What does that have to do with King Lear Act Five? Well, not a whole lot specifically, but on the other hand, it does have to do with the sordid plot or dubious plot with which the transcendent story of Act Five of King Lear is, uh, is bound up. One of the things that's so amazing about this Act Five of Lear is that Shakespeare spends as much time in it as he does dealing with these sordid plots. Now, we would say, well, he had to entertain his audience, we would say. Yes, but when, I think when Shakespeare is this close to writing what is arguably the most profound thing he's ever written, when he's that close, I don't think he is preoccupied with uh, serving the audience. And I think at the end of the play, we'll see that he does not do for the audience uh, what dramatists have always tried to do at the end of the play. So why does he include this material? And I think it is because he sees it as a symbol of the human problematic. So let's start with scene one and watch what goes on. Regan and Edmund are alone on stage. And Regan says to Edmund, Now, sweet lord, you know the goodness I intend upon you. Tell me, but truly, but then speak the truth. Do you love my sister? Now, notice she says truly. Speak the truth. She's really anxious to get an answer to this question. Now, people caught up in these mimetic triangles have a tremendous anxiety about resolving them. Although, perhaps unconsciously, they realize that were they to be resolved, uh, they would have to forego the intensity that they have provided. But, she, but nevertheless, we've all been in them, and we know this feeling. We need to get it clarified. We need an answer. We need a decision. I've worked with that etymology, that word decision, before, decidere, which means to cut. Uh, René Girard has an, uh, understands the term less uh, benignly than I've treated it in the past. Uh, and he says it's a sacrificial term. He says that this... this need for a decision uh, is related etymologically to the sharp edge of the knife that will produce one. Well, there's something of that going on here. Regan is saying, look, I, I need to know. Do you love my sister? And Edmund, who is in this triangle, you see, we've been talking about the, the, soci the sociology of triangles here. In this triangle, Edmund is the is the desired one, the object of desire. And the two, two daughters of Lear are the, are the subjects who are in rivalry uh, for him as the object of desire. Now, in a triangle, it's always uh, more, it's always uh, a richer experience to be the object than to be one of the, one of the rivals. Now, one, being a rival is filled with its own kind of special intensity. Uh, but also it has a lot of anxieties going with it. Being the object of desire is, 
it's, it's, it's good work if you can get it. Well, Edmund instinctively knows this. He instinctively knows what, what uh, the, the object of desire in a triangle always knows, which is that, that, the, that the, uh, the blessedness of being in that position depends on a certain ambiguity. And so when one of the rivals says to him, I need to know for sure, tell me truly, do speak the truth, do you love my sister? He says, in honored love. Well, what's that? You see, that's just it. It's an equivocation. It's an exasperation of the problem. The problem intensifies. Regan says, but have you never found my brother's way to the forfended place? You see, haven't you found your way to Goneril's bed? And he says, the thought abuses you. Well, this is still not clarity. Equivocation. Regan then says, I am doubtful that you have been conjunct and bosomed with her as far as we call hers, which is an Elizabethan way of saying, I'm afraid maybe you have been having an affair with her. And Edmund says, no, by, by mine honor, madam. And Regan I never shall endure her. Dear my Lord, be not familiar with her. How focused Regan is on her sister as opposed to Edmund. She speaks all the way through here of her. You can tell that he, she's really looking at her sister and not at Edmund. The shift has already occurred, that, that fateful shift, when the, when the intensity of the rivalry is more powerful than the, than the intensity of the desire. That's already occurred. So, and it becomes absolutely clear when she finally says, I never shall endure her. Dear my Lord, be not familiar with her. It's losing Edmund to her that has become the, the anxiety of, of Regan. And in case any of that has been missed, Goneril comes on stage and in a brief aside, makes it all absolutely, unmistakably clear. She says, I had rather lose the battle than that sister should loosen him and me. Now, the battle, you see, what is happening is that there is a battle preparing between the French forces and the British forces because the French forces have landed to rescue uh, Lear. And the, the armies are preparing. And Goneril says, I had rather lose the battle than that sister should loosen him and me. I would rather lose everything than to have her win. You see, the, the, the object of desire here, completely uh, eliminated, doesn't matter. It's not really that she desires somebody, but rather lose it all than to have the opponent win. Now, this is the basic theme of a brief narrative in the Old Testament, which was the starting point for René Girard's re-investigation of biblical material with respect to uh, the mimetic uh, anthropology that he had been uh, working out. It's the story of Solomon, the judgment of Solomon. This is how the story goes. Two harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, 
and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day, after I was delivered, this woman gave, also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else in the house, only we two in the house, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So there you have the basic problem. One child, two mothers. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her, her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, it was dead. But when I looked at it closely in the morning, behold, it was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. See that absolute mimesis there? Back and forth, saying exactly the same thing, repeating the words. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive, your son is dead. The other says, no, your son is dead, my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. And a sword was brought, and he said, divide the living child in two, give half to one and half to the other. And one of the women said, no, my lord, give her the living child and by no means slay it. But the other one said, it shall be neither mine nor yours divided. And the king, in his wisdom, recognized that the one who was willing to relinquish the child alive was the mother, and the other was not. Now, the, what's this, what this story says is that this mimetic intensity, at, at the point at which this story uh, develops, the mimetic intensity is so profound that it will, it, that it will eliminate Every bond except for the maternal one. In this story, it does not eliminate the maternal one. Uh, there are texts that indicate that if it's allowed to run its course long enough, it will eliminate that one. And there's some of that, of course, in King Lear. The familial one is eliminated in King Lear. Uh, but in any case, it, it, it indicates there's a point at which someone involved says, I would rather lose everything than that my opponent win. Well, that's the level of intensity where this, where, where we be, uh, where Act 5 begins. Albany had come on stage with Goneril, and he says, the king is come to his daughter with others whom the rigor of our state forced to cry out. Where I could not be honest, I never yet was valiant. Now, he's going to be honest and make distinctions at a, at a moment when most political leaders are neither honest nor capable of making distinctions. He's going to have, his, his valor is going to coexist with his honesty. Now, that doesn't always happen. A lot of times our valor is born of a situation in which our honesty is submerged. There's a wonderful passage about valor in, uh, in the early part of Hamlet that has always fascinated me. It's when Horatio speaks of Hamlet's father, who has been, who's now dead. He says, our valiant Hamlet, and then there's a little parenthesis, our valiant Hamlet, for so this side of our known world did esteem him. It's a recognition that uh, we, we recognized his valor, 
but if somebody who had a larger perspective were honest about it, he would, he would see that what we call valor uh, is the, exactly what our opponents exhibit and we call treason or whatever it is. We call, uh, what we call freedom fighters is what they call terrorists and vice versa. Uh, but Albany says, where I could not be honest, I never yet was valiant. This is a rare quality in a, in a political leader that, he's, that he, he, uh, he brings honesty to bear on his valor. And he says, for this business it touches us as France invades our land. Not bulls the king with others whom I fear most just and heavy causes make oppose. Which is to say, they, the French have invaded and we have a legitimate uh, need to uh, repulse the invasion. However, they are allied with the king and those that we have uh, forced out with him, and I'm afraid their cause is a superior moral cause to our own. So he recognizes that there is that there is a conflict in this in this uh, historical struggle that's about to take place. Edmund, who is dis who is dissembling all the while, says, "Sir, you speak nobly." But Regan and Goneril uh, are more to the point. Regan says, "Why is this reason?" Why do you bother with that kind of talk? And, and Goneril follows on, combined together against the enemy. For these domestic and particular broils are not the question here. Look, we have an enemy. We don't have to talk about our, the domestic problem of, you know, the conflict we're having with the king or Kent or any of, you know, Gloucester or whatever. We don't have to talk about it. We've got an enemy right here. But this is Shakespeare just poking fun, you see, because this is the same Goneril who 60 seconds ago had said, I had rather lose the battle than that sisters should loosen him and me. Which is to say, these domestic broils are far more important than this larger historical contest. To the extent that these domestic uh, broils have to do with her rival, she would rather lose it all. But now that she, now that it's not actually her sister and Edmund they're talking about, but the but the domestic quarrel between uh, the dukedoms and the former king, then she says, "Well, this these are this is no matter. We have a bigger problem. We have to put aside, we have to put aside these domestic problems and get on with this larger historical context." Do you see what Shakespeare's done? He's just he just poked fun at her and poked fun at us. As we, I think he sees that that's the way we operate. Albany says, well, let's go uh, discuss this with our, with our ancient, the, the ancient of war, the, the uh, military commanders who will know more about how to proceed. And for absolutely no reason except Shakespeare wants to have some fun, Edmund says, I shall attend you presently at your tent. There's no reason that this doesn't play in the plot. But he says, oh, I'll be there in a little while. So they start to walk off. And Regan says, sister, uh, you'll go with us? Goneril says, no. And Regan, tis most convenient. Pray you go with us. Goneril, tis most convenient. Pray you go with us. What's she doing? She's saying, hey, look. 
Edmund's not coming with us. I don't know where he's going, but he's, he's, he's on the loose out there. And I don't want Regan on the loose with him. You see that? You better come with us. And Goneril, in an aside, says, Oh, I know the riddle. I will go. Meaning, I know, I know why she's asking me to go. She doesn't want me to have a rendezvous with Edmund. So here they are going off to the meeting with the generals to decide what to do about the great historical crisis, the invasion by foreign force, right? But the two sisters are totally preoccupied with how they're going to checkmate each other in their little triangle. And both of them willing to let the to, to lose it all rather than lose to their rival. And it's just a measure of, of how intense that triangle can become. Edmund is left on stage alone. And he gives the soliloquy of the desired one. To both these sisters have I sworn my love, each jealous of the other as the stung are by the adder. Which of them shall I take? Both? One? Neither? Neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive. To take the widow exasperates, makes mad her sister Goneril. And hardly shall I carry out my side, her husband being alive. Now then, we'll use his countenance for the battle, which being done, let her, who would be rid of him, devise his speedy taking off. Now, this has to be unpacked a little bit just in terms of the shifting triangles of this play. But this is the object looking out. Now, he's having to decide. Forget the fact for a second that he's the object. He has to now. He, he's actually trying to decide between these two. Now, that means he... Now, we're, what we're looking at is his desire. So, he's saying, which shall it be? Well, it's clear that it doesn't really matter to him. He's saying, well, what shall it be? Both? One? Neither? I don't know. Not, in other words, there's nothing substantial to go on. Well, we know that Regan doesn't have a husband, so there isn't a triangle over there. There isn't a rival at all with Regan. Now, Albany is the worst rival because he's, he, she won't play the game and so on. But at least he's there. At least he forms some kind of a vague, watery sort of triangle. And, all, and Edmund opts for that, although with hardly a, a distinction. He simply says, well, this is how it will work. But notice what he does. The tri he opts into the triangle. They say that's where his slightly more intense uh, interest is because there is a, a vague half-hearted rival. But when he chooses the triangle, he chooses it still not as a rival, but as the object. He says when it's all over, Goneril will kill Albany. In other words, he's still the object of desire, and, and Goneril is still in a position to, to be in competition with a rival. Kind of. It, we could go on and on and on with this sort of thing. Because it's endless, the, the variations are absolutely endless. But with nothing else to go on, he chooses the vague, uh, half-hearted triangle. And then he says, as for the mercy which he intends to Lear and to Cordelia, 
the battle done and they within our power shall never see his pardon. For my state stands on me to defend, not to debate. And Shakespeare, who has seen, I think, probably better than anybody in the literary record, has seen into the funny business of political life. puts his finger on it here. Now, I want you to compare two, two short passages. Albany said, where I could not be honest, I never yet was valiant. In other words, he's recognizing a, recognizing a distinction even in the midst of the historical crisis which tends to eliminate those distinctions. One thinks of Jimmy Carter in his cardigan sweater talking about the cultural malaise, the spiritual malaise and being laughed out of Washington, D.C. by Ronald Reagan on his white horse talking about the evil empire. Because you just don't need to make those kind of silly distinctions if you have a nice, solid enemy there. You see? Well, so Albany says, where I could not be honest, I never yet was valiant. And Edmund says, for my state stands on me to defend, not to debate. When we have an enemy there, we have this, what seems a legitimate reason, to just ignore those moral misgivings that might arise about what's going on in that state, what that state consists of, really. That's completely eclipsed by the fact that we have this other this enemy. So Edmund knows exactly how to respond. He says, I'm here to defend and not to debate. One might say that when the situation becomes morally debatable, political leaders look for an opportunity to, to, to take on a defensive posture with regard to an external enemy so as to avoid the debate. See? Well, this is not, it's not central to what's going to happen in Act 5, but it's all part of the crazy, funny business, the, the dubious plots in which, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, our transcendent stories are always uh, entangled. Edmund sends Cordelia and Lear off with the captain of the guard with papers instructing him to kill them. And he says to the captain, One step I have advanced thee. That is to say, he's got one more stripe on his arm. He gets, a, he gets an advancement. One step I have advanced thee. If thou dost as this instructs thee, thou dost make thy way to noble fortune. Know thou this, that men are as the time is. To be tender-minded does not become a sword. Thy great employments will not bear question. Either say thou do it, or thrive by other means. And the captain says, I'll do it, my lord. Know thou this. Know thou this is Shakespearean way of calling attention to it. Know thou this. That men are as the times. Exactly the opposite of what St. Paul said in the letter to the Romans. Be not conformed to the wisdom of this age. If you want to... Because, because the the... The, the silliness and sin in which you will 
undoubtedly be embroiled is always the silliness and sin that has been sanctioned by your age. So there's one voice which says, be not conformed to the wisdom of your age, and another voice which says, men are as the time is. And that's, that's what Edmund is saying. Men are as the time is. And this is a very, this, you see, this is a very difficult time we're in. And certain things have to be done that this is, you see, you don't have to go far to get, to, you don't have to take too many leaps to get from here to, to some of the worst consequences of the, of the Nietzschean madness. Uh, these, are, these are difficult times and it takes somebody that's got the stomach for it. See? Uh, to be tender-minded does not become a sword. How many, how many times has something like that been spoken by the uh, forces of history? In our time, most often, the revolutionary forces of history. The, uh, the forces in place uh, speak it in their own idiom as well, of course. Thy great employment will not bear question. In other words, we're not going to raise any moral questions about this. You may have some moral misgivings, or else he wouldn't, Edmund wouldn't have to say that if he didn't anticipate that there's some moral misgivings about cold-bloodedly killing people. But he says there won't be questions raised about this. This is something that's done in the line of duty. We have a way of eliminating the moral objection. And the way is always mythology. We have a myth that will tell us that it was okay. The myth will say that in time of war, it's okay to execute traitors on the spot. You see, we have a myth that will take care of the moral misgivings. So. So thy great employment will not bear question. Either say thou'll do it or thrive by other means, and he says, I'll do it. I, I cannot draw a cart nor eat dried oats. If it be man's work, I'll do it. Man's work. For Shakespeare, man's work is uh, killing is man's work. I quoted last week Lady Macbeth. When Macbeth is reluctant, she says, Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire? When you durst do it, then you were a man. So the captain here says, if it be man's work, I'll do it. Uh, but what does, this, what does this passage say? The passage says two things. Men are as the time is, which is a Shakespearean way of saying, uh, you make your moral judgments based on the Gallup poll. So it's absolutely clear that's, what, that's the implication of that statement. And the second one is that uh, uh, murder, or let's be a little more euphemistic about it, execution is man's work. And when you durst do it, then you were a man, and women have questionable dispositions for the work. And those who have questionable dispositions for the work have uh, cast a doubt on their manhood and strength. Now, that seems quaint and strange, but it, it, it didn't jar at all with the article that appeared in uh, the, uh, this last week's New York Times, headlined, The Stampede Toward a Hard Line on Execution. I just want to read you a couple of passages from it and see how it fits with the Shakespearean text. The Shakespearean text was written four centuries ago. 
You cannot be against the death penalty and survive a campaign for major office in Florida, said J.M. Stepanovich, Governor Martinez's campaign manager. Marvin Field, the California poll taker, said virtually the same thing about his state. Now, Edmund said, either say thou do it or thrive by other means. Does it fit or not? It goes on. In California, the former mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, has resuscitated her lagging campaign for Democratic nomination for governor with a, with a dramatic commercial that declared her, quote, the only Democrat for governor for the death penalty. Her Democratic opponent, Mr. Vandekamp, opposes the death penalty but has fought his way back into the race with a commercial that shows the door to the gas chamber opening as the announcer says that Mr. Vandekamp as district attorney and now state attorney general, quote, put or kept 277 murderers on death row. Either say thou do it or thrive by other means. The political message of the time. Unquestioned. Now we have the other question. The other question is, uh, when thou dost do it, then you were a man question of one's manhood. In Texas, Attorney General Jim Maddox and the former governor, Mark White, a second candidate for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination, sought to use the issue to paint the third candidate, Ann Richards, as weak, even though she too supports the death penalty. Quote, the death penalty in Texas was a device, said George Shipley, an advisor to Ms. Richards, he said it was used by two male candidates, quote, to separate the electorate by gender, to draw strength and weakness comparisons to show that Miss Richards was too weak to be governor. As far as I can tell, there's absolutely no difference between what's depicted in that story and what Shakespeare's talking about. In this book. Shakespeare has so much else to talk about, you know, and so much more important things in a certain way than that but have things changed. So Albany comes along and asks Edmund for the prisoners, prisoners being Lear and Cordelia. And Edmund says, Sir, I thought it fit to send the old and miserable king to some retention and appointed guard whose age had charms in it, whose title more, to pluck the common bosom on his side and turn our impressed lances in our eyes which do command them. With him I sent the queen, my reason all the same. First of all, these are impressed lances. That is to say, our forces are all drafted. We have drafted these forces. And we have, we have imbued them, we have whispered in their ears the mythological uh, excuse for what we're doing. Uh, but still in all, we don't know how, how much it has taken hold. Crowds being what they are, it could ver they could very easily turn on us if they were to see this old, revered, pitiable king. But Albany reminds, gives Edmund a little upbraiding. He reminds him who's in charge. He says, look, I'm in charge here. You're, we're, you're not an equal. You're not a brother in this cause, but a subject. And Regan objects when, when, she, when he says you're not a brother because his brother in the cause would have been her husband, Cornwall. And she's been trying to get uh, Edmund into that position for some time. 
And so she takes this opportunity to do something very, in terms of her mimetic triangle with her sister, she does something very amazing. When Albany says that Edmund is not a brother, Regan says, that's as we list to grace him. He led our troops, bore the commission of my place and person, the which immediacy may well stand up and call itself your brother. In other words, she's saying he's done everything that the Duke of Cornwall would have done under the circumstances, so we think that he's more or less kind of like a Duke of Cornwall, is what she's saying. And Goneril, for all the world like Miss Piggy, says, not so hot, <laughs> because she realizes what's being put in place here. She says, not so hot. In his own grace, he doth exalt himself more than in your addition. But Shakespeare, I think, is playing around because, in fact, the two sisters have been bidding up his stock all the while. So he really is advancing because of this contest they're having. And Regan says, In my rights, by me invested, he compares the best. He equals the best. This is a little play on words, too. Compares means to equal. How do you equal the best? That's the problematic right there. It's exactly the problematic on which this play started. Two equals in a world which knows superlatives. How do you? It just, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. He compares the best. It's a, it's a phrase that sums up the whole problem. And uh, Goneril says, that were the most if he should husband you. And Regan, jesters do oft prove profit. Hola, hola, she says, that eye that told you so looked but a squint. The, the eye that looks a squint is the jealous eye, the green-eyed monster. So, they, so the, the two daughters start to grovel here, really. And Regan's not going to let this chance slip by. She says, Lady, I am not well, else I should answer from full-flowing stomach. I should curse you roundly if I felt better, but I don't feel so well. We'll find out in a minute why she doesn't feel so well. She turns to Edmund and addresses him as general. General, take thou my soldiers, prisoners, patrimony, dispose of them, of me. The walls are thine. Witness the world that I create thee here, my lord and master. We think, it, what is this, Sadie Hawkins Day? <laughs> She's given up hope that this is going to happen. She just makes it happen. She says, it's yours. It's all yours. Edmund uh, asserts his, his, para, his power, and Regan says in an aside to Edmund, let the drum strike and prove my title thine. And this thing about... Sh uh, Goneril had said earlier about Albany, where is thy drum? And I think the drum here is a, is a symbol for that primitive kind of murderous impulse, but a very primitive one, one that has no sanction really, other than the kind of sanction that we say, why is it that when the two late adolescents uh, get into the fight, why is it we form a circle? instead of just walk away. Well, the circle is, is the kind of sociology that's convened by the drum. It's a very primitive sort of uh, sanctioning of this, of this um, contest. 
So she's willing to invoke the drum. Let the drum strike. Albany arrests Edmund for treason. Albany then says, For your claim, fair sister, I borrowed in the interest of my wife. Tis she is subcontracted to this lord, and I, her husband, contradict your bane. If you will marry, he says to Edmund, if you will marry, make your loves to me, my lady is bespoke. Now, we could do some interesting psychoanalysis on that line, if you will marry, make your loves to me. But he's really saying, make your petition for her hand to me, because she's married to me. Albany is finally uh, responding to the stuff that's going on all around him. He says, hey, wait a minute, folks. I'm married to one of these women. You're talking as though I'm not here. Hold on a second. And so he asserts himself, and he arrests, not just in a legal sense, but in a, in, another, in a structural sense. He arrests Edmund for the first time. Edmund hadn't been arrested. Edmund has just been able to go anywhere, and therefore no passion. There's been no obstacle for Edmund, and that's why he doesn't have any passion. And suddenly, Albany's becoming the obstacle. I arrest you. Oh, wait, now, look what's happening. And he says, hey, she's mine. And Goneril says, an interlude. And I think this has to be, you see, sometimes this is often uh, staged as when she says an interlude, she's just saying, oh, just a silly little interlude. I think it's not that at all. I think it's that she's very excited. This is what she's been hoping for. This is her triangle coming into play. See? Edmund, Albany, and herself. An interlude is a little melodrama, a little play within a play. She's like, this is it. An interlude. This is what we've been waiting for. They're going to fight over me, she says. Hot dog. But that's what Goneril's been looking for, you see. That's what she's been looking for. And Albany says, Thou art armed, Gloucester, let the trumpet sound. And of course, Edgar comes and they fight. But before we get to that, I just want to speak about the, the difference between the drum and the trumpet. The, the trumpet, the, it, it really, they, they relate to the same ritual. But one is the is the ritual slightly more disguised with procedural with a procedural apparatus. The the, the trumpet is a more is a more um, culturally sanctioned version of the of the ritual that that would otherwise be attended by the drum. But I, I think I think morally Shakespeare makes a very minor distinction between them. Regan says, Oh, sick, sick, and Goneril in an aside, if not, I'll ne'er trust medicine. Just to say, Goneril has poisoned her. And Regan says, My sickness grows upon me. And of course, Shakespeare, I think, is talking there about something more than just the poison in her, in her stomach, but the poison that's systemic 